Welcome to this week's edition of the NPM podcast, sponsored by global business advisory firm FTI Consulting. I'm John Burke, managing editor of New Project Media, and uh, joining me today is Justin Pugh, senior managing director for FTI and part of the Power Renewables and Energy Transition practice. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Justin. Thanks for having me, John. So before we get in today's uh, topic du jour, um, which is uh, getting into a progress report of sorts on the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, I'm just wondering if you could just walk through um, the Power Renewables and Energy Transition Practice or PRET and what FTI offers from within that group. Definitely. So the Power Renewable and Energy Transition Practice at FTI Consulting is about a 50-person domestic consulting practice focused primarily on strategic and financial advisory offering services to participants in the power renewables and energy transition sectors up and down the value chain anywhere from component manufacturers all the way to the ultimate project owner uh, we work across jurisdictions and around the world uh, the practice was formalized about four years ago and and since that time has seen uh, rapid expansion into adjacencies uh, and related services to now offer a full scale of uh, and suite of services to participants in the industry. Great, thanks for that. So we're about two months uh, past the passage of uh, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Um, we've seen plenty of companies talk about it. We've um, seen deals executed post IRA 2022 and mentioned as a key trigger for these deals uh, as um, you know the notion is it's going to affect uh, pipelines not today but perhaps for tomorrow so I guess from your uh, perch um, what do you think are the real key takeaways and advantages to this uh, legislation sure I think they're manifold. Uh, the IRA was poised to and will supercharge the industry and lead to substantial increases of renewable capacity and penetration in the years ahead. Uh, some salient major provisions include new tax credit rate structures based on compliance with wage and apprentice requirements. And we'll come back to these requirements because they're actually essential to realizing the full value and benefit of the tax credits. Uh, there are also bonus tax credits available for projects that meet domestic content requiring uh, requirements, spurring the domestic supply chain, as well as additional credits associated with projects located in certain low income areas known as energy communities under the act. Uh, as previously mentioned regarding the domestic content requirements, there is a strong interest. There was a strong interest and will continue to be a strong interest uh, from domestic and international manufacturers in setting up or expanding manufacturing capabilities in the US as a result of this. Uh, and there is a certain pecking order specifically as it relates to the solar supply chain, where you'll see sort of module assembly manufacturers first, followed by cell manufacturing and upstream manufacturing capabilities uh, will take a lot longer to be realized given the necessary requirements to make those economic. In addition to these tax credits associated with the energy communities and uh, domestic content requirements, there's been an extension and an expansion of both wind and solar tax credits. There's a new ability to take the production tax credit for solar deals. Uh, there's an expansion and an increased value of tax credits for carbon capture. 
Uh, there is now a technology neutral tax credit, both production tax credit and investment tax credit that will come into place in 2025 once the existing PTC and ITCs for wind and solar expire. So it's essentially an expansion or an extension of those ITCs out into the future, depending on the penetration of renewables at that point in time. There are new tax credits for new technologies such as clean hydrogen production uh, zero and zero emission nuclear power. Uh, there's a mechanism now that will allow for the direct transfer or sale of renewable credits to third parties uh, and very limited provisions regarding direct pay of those tax credits uh, to certain entities with respect to certain tax credits. There are a couple of kind of lesser known incentives, uh, well, maybe not lesser known, depending on what vantage point you're, you're sitting at, um, but there is an expansion of the definition of ITC eligible energy property to include storage, so standalone storage, which wasn't allowed under the old uh, regulation, qualified biogas and microgrid controllers. There's an expansion and an extension of renewable and clean fuel production tax credits. And last but not least, while not completely an expansive list, but the credit carryback period for renewable tax credits is extended from one to three years. I think that's a pretty good overview, while not, you know, again, completely comprehensive, as there are other provisions that aren't related to individual projects, but for instance, the DOE's programs uh, under Title 17 and various other financing sources provided by the LPO have also been extended and will help rejuvenate and recharge um, some technologies as well as investment in certain communities that this uh, bill specifically didn't address. Uh, thanks for that. Um, I'd actually like to talk about the supply chain before we go into some of these other areas. Um, do you foresee a lot of the domestic manufacturing playing out more as brownfield uh, than greenfield at this point, given all the, let's say, I don't know, what's a natural candidate, the auto, auto industry, for instance, like, there being some sort of modifications done yes. to older, you know, car lines. If that's where we're going to see a lot of these, um, I, foreign and domestic solar. I, 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 I do initially, um, and and you know, obviously for for the same reasons that you saw older wind farms located in specific areas, older manufacturing facilities were typically located in optimal positions from a supply chain perspective for distribution of the product. So I do see some retooling of manufacturing capabilities. Um, there actually is some additional liquidity provided by the IRA to do that. Uh, and so there are incentives to be able to retool existing manufacturing facilities to make them domestic manufacturing facilities of domestic content for renewable energy. So I do see you know, the early wins being that, but we have been involved with several international players who are looking to locate in what I would say are typically economically disadvantaged areas that do not have existing manufacturing capabilities in these industries. So it's not necessary that you must have a brownfield manufacturing site. You should have both a local and a federal incentive to locate. Uh, if not, you will be economically disadvantaged, but you also need to be around some source 
that provides you some locational advantage. And that source may be a highway or that source may be a water source, depending on who you are. Uh, and so there are some natural advantages to locating in certain positions. And it just so happens that those natural advantages were exploited by uh, existing manufacturing in large part kind of mid the last century. Yeah, we've certainly seen um, at least public disclosures about uh, domestic uh, capacity going up in Arizona, just for starters. Yep. Um, but um, for solar, I believe was expanding Ohio and um, you know, some we've seen coastal that. Louisiana. We've seen coastal Mississippi. We've seen Alabama. So we, we've actually seen, you know, a lot of a lot of southern states be good, attractive targets. And a lot of those southern states have actually started to offer certain incentives or at least localities within those states. Oh, very interesting. Um, so. Um, you know, as we just revert back to some of the other parts of the IRA 2022, um, who do you think some of the bigger winners are going to come out of it and uh, why? Um, and this this is a broad general question, I realize that, but, uh, you know, if you could just give me a good uh, answer around that. Yep. So I think obviously the major winners are traditional developers, IPPs and utilities that have su substantial exposure, uh, particularly those that are vertically integrated. So large vertically integrated utilities uh, are in the most optimal position. Uh, residential and small scale CNI solar customers and installers uh, may directly benefit from the IRA without significant additional compliance requirements. Uh, the traditional renewable technologies, solar and wind, obviously they've just received the needed extension to their tax credit regime, regime and now solar is eligible for the PTC. So you, you won't see what you saw probably in 2022, which is a fall off in installations, which is the first time in you know, years that you've seen fewer installations. And you know that's in part because of the supply chain, in part because of uh, ADD and CVD issues, but also you know, you've seen a fall off in the incentive to produce. Uh, technologies where the benefit has increased substantially. So we didn't speak on it above, but carbon sequestration has increased by 70% per metric ton uh, with respect to the tax credits that are involved in, in that technology. Technologies that are newly eligible for tax credits, standalone storage, clean hydrogen, uh, that provides the economic incentive there to develop. Uh, domestic manufacturers of qualifying solar, wind, and battery components, uh, depending on the equipment, these manufacturers are now eligible to receive tax credits where they weren't before. And these lower income energy communities where development is encouraged and, you know, workers in those communities and workers in other communities uh, who are in the process of being retrained um, will now see an increased demand for their services uh, because we didn't get into it before, but there was a snippet above that there are worker and apprenticeship requirements in order to receive maximum tax credit. And so if you do not meet these requirements, in all cases, uh, you'll receive a fifth of the benefit of the tax credit, and you also could be penalized uh, depending on what quantity of uh, the worker and apprenticeship requirements that you achieve. So I think those are some of the winners, some for, for obvious reasons, uh, and then maybe some for less obvious reasons, but they're still the winners. Um, getting to your point about these IPPs and these uh, vertically integrated developers, um, and this goes back to my question about the supply chain. Um, do you think this will also provide incentive for them to get involved in the supply chain at some point as investors? I think they they would be behooved to get involved in the supply chain as an investor. Um, you know, the question becomes 
can they justify it from a return perspective uh, and can they get comfortable with the risk? I mean, it's not it's not a risk that they're used to taking, obviously, right. and it's not a risk that they're comfortable with taking. And so I think they will be somewhat loath to get involved while I believe, you know, their involvement may be critical in doing this at scale. Um, that being said, I do think that there's still a ton of capital that's looking to be deployed and that capital can now be deployed in an environment where portions of the development have now been de-risked. So you could say absent the IRA, they would need to get involved, but with the IRA, there's enough capital that's now been de-risked that make these investments profitable for even those that have higher hurdle rates that could crowd them out of making those investments. And then they can then turn around and invest in things that they're good at, uh, which include stuff like transmission, which you know was notably absent from, from the IRA and is something that's very much needed. So there's no transmission tax credit. Uh, there's no transmission property tax credit. And so, you know, as a result, one of the limiting factors of the deployment of the technologies that has you know, created this void that we need to overcome is still there. Uh, and there have been proposals uh, by Senator Manchin for one to try to break the logjam there, but for various reasons, those did not move forward. But in order to receive full value for the IRA, we're going to have to do something about that. Uh, well, you uh, transitioned to the next question and started answering it. So um, we might as well get into it. I actually had seen this morning that uh, MISO had uh, knocked out Invenergy's Grain Belt project out of its uh, the first phase of its plans uh, to um, Bring transmission to MISO with a was a initially announced $10 billion investment, I believe, um, a couple months back. Um, but obviously we we'd been waiting uh, on the mansion bill to come forward to talk about transmission. And people had thought, yes, that in fact there would be a tax credit for transmission, which there was not none any. Um so um where do you think we stand on this one? I mean, I think to your point, we deal with a few people investing in transmission and not many. Um, and these are the significant builders like in the Southeast, such as NextEra, uh, globally backed uh, entities like Pattern, uh, as well as Invenergy, which is also globally backed currently, just very sizable, scalable uh, IPPs. But beyond that, there isn't much in terms of new building. Um, so we're some of the, talk to me about the, the mansion bill of what, what it brought to the table and um you know what else do you think needs to happen to get transmission up to par it's a yeah, question so, or two but go ahead sorry didn't mean to speak over you so the mansion bill is really in two parts uh it had two subtitles one really dealt with accelerating the agency reviews and you know in part this is one of the extreme limiters of being able to push forward with with these projects um, the Mansion Bill was set to streamline a process for authorization and review of energy and natural resource projects, setting timelines and deadlines for review processes, which at present could take years. And there was an effort to sort of shorten that to 180 days. 
Uh, there was another element of the accelerating agency reviews whereby there was to be a prioritization of energy projects of strategic national importance by the president. And the president was to designate pro these projects and allow for a fast tracking of those. Those projects include both energy and, and minerals. And I think at any one point in time, there were 25 of these strategically nationally important projects to be on a presidential list. Uh, and as a third part of the accelerating of agency reviews, there was an empowering of the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council and an improvement of those reviews made by that council to make changes to existing permitting laws related to energy and natural resources, all in the vein of accelerating, you know, making these agency reviews that could take years, take six months, maybe, maybe a year at most. Uh, in addition, the second subtitle was modernizing permitting laws. Uh, there and this is where I would say the most objectionable part of the Mansion Bill that you know found uh, certain pushback from certain elements of of Mr. Manchin's own party came into play. Uh, but the modernizing permitting law really included kind of four subparts. The last part is the most uh, I'd say objectionable, which was requiring a federal agency to issue all approval and permits necessary for the construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which would have been a fossil fuel pipeline from Virginia to West Virginia. Um, but there are a couple of other elements of the modernization of permitting law subtitle that would have been very beneficial, um, one of which was clarifying that FERC could regulate the interstate transmission of hydrogen at just in the same way that they regulate the interstate transmission of natural gas and the transmission of natural gas. Um, there were some elements regarding modernization of transmission permitting laws that, you know, expanded the existing authority to give the federal government increased permitting authority for transmission lines uh, found by the Secretary of Energy to be a natural interest. And it required the FERC to ensure project costs are allocated to customers that benefit and allows FERC to approve payments from utilities to jurisdictions impacted by a project. This would actually extremely streamline the permitting process and would knock down many kind of interstate barriers that exist today. Uh, and there was a lesser related provision regarding the state certification under the Clean Water Act. So I, I do think there were a number of provisions in this bill that would have been extremely uh, beneficial to alleviating the constraints and you know would have allowed for the gigawatts of capacity that's called up in transmission queues to be cleared out uh, unfortunately it you know there it looked like somebody was just trading things that everyone should want for one thing that many people don't want uh, and you know it was a pretty blatant way of, of getting that done and as a consequence found objections or objectors on both sides of the aisle um, well, just getting to the um, subject of interconnection log jams, which again is um, is something we're going to be getting back to time and time again, because you know we've already walked through the natural incentives to grow the solar and wind and the community solar market in, in general, which I think we talked to a lot of people. They talk about the various subspecific parts of the IRA, which is going to benefit community solar. Um, so it's going to cause accelerated growth. I mean, you would think um, or entitle it. And, you know, it, the question becomes then, you know, does the logjam problem get worse over time? And that that's I, what I'm curious about. So so I think there there's, I think in the short run, the answer is yes. Um, I do think that people are very cognizant of the fact that, uh, you know, if you build a bunch of cars and don't build any new roads, 
you know, obviously you haven't improved the situation of transportation. So it's it's very similar in this regard. That being said, there are a couple of provisions in the IRA, such as the ITC for standalone storage, that may accelerate the deployment of non-wire alternatives for transmission upgrades. I mean, it, it's not a replacement for building out transmission. That should absolutely occur. Um, that being said, they, they are sort of pushing incentives in a way that could alleviate some of the congestion in the medium term. I think we don't have any choice but to suffer through the congestion that currently occurs unless, you know, for some reason, people, cooler heads prevail regarding what's in the best interest of everyone. Uh, and if that would occur, then, you know, portions of the mansion bill that were the most beneficial would get passed and they can fight about the controversial ones later. Um, you know, that being said, these other provisions uh, that accelerate deployment of non-wire alternatives will have to be relied on in the short term. So rephrasing the question again. Um, so what's your sense on the transferability clause uh, in the IRA 2022? And also um, there were certain um, investors that are not going to be allowed to utilize direct pay. Uh, it wasn't the massive uh, exemption that everybody thought was under Build Back Better, but there's certain folks like um, Indian tribes that could use direct pay if they wanted to, tax-exempt entities. Um, so just your thoughts on the effectiveness of both transferability and then the direct pay exemptions. I think transferability is obviously an important funding consideration for developers and project sponsors uh, that are less experienced in raising tax equity or well served by the tax equity market. It's a very convoluted and complicated market, as, as you well know. The transferability mechanism will enable these players to effectively sell and monetize the tax credits associated with the projects they're developing without requiring employing these complicated structures. Uh, these uh, transferability long been a feature of the low income housing market uh, that allows you know simpler structures uh, and a more easy and available access to capital. Um, that being said, it doesn't allow for the realization of other benefits that tax equity structures allowed for, such as maker's depreciation. Uh, that being said, it democratizes the tax equity market, allows less established players to raise capital through transferability without having to go to the market. Uh, it makes the structure more simple, so it expands what would traditionally be considered the tax equity investor base. Um, it reduces some of the burdens for demonstrating economic substance that were previously required, making underwriting standards looser. Uh, tax equity doesn't have to commit until a project is closer to the year in which the credit will be generated. So there's a lot more certainty that there will be tax appetite at that point in time. All of these things make tax equity cheaper uh, as there are no convoluted structures that represent a tax on the process of raising money. And you can split the credits easier. If you wanted to split credits in the past, you had to have multiple tax equity investors in your structure or create multiple structures. Now you can just sell to multiple people. Uh, it's not, not that challenging. Um, you know, I think industry participants were anticipating this bifurcation of tax equity markets with a brokerage-centered market for transferred tax credits and a separate market for traditional tax equity, uh, as makers does still represent a significant value, which validates the value of the complicated tax equity structures. But this democratization is on balance very good and should make things much cheaper. Um, Regarding direct pay, as as you adequately mentioned, you know direct pay is a feature for Indian tribes, the 
TVA, uh, Tennessee Valley Authority, and other uh, non-tax paying entities. I don't know that it has that much of an impact. I don't think it has a dramatic impact, and I think people want it to see it obviously much broader uh, than than the market that we ended up with here. Uh, and I think it might still be a consideration at some point in the future um, because you know the the carve out of these players doesn't really include the significant deployers of the technologies that are being incentivized under the IRA. So I, I think on on balance, it will be relatively de minimis the impact that direct pay has as it compares to the transferability of the tax credits. Thank, thank you for that. Thank you for your time today. And that's all the time we have. So thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll do this again next time. Work uh, out. Uh, Justin, uh, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Awesome.